to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. This episode is dedicated to sleep and sleep disorders and how they affect brain health. We now know that a good night's restorative sleep is crucial for proper functioning of the brain, whether it's cognition, concentration, productivity, or peak performance. Unfortunately, until recently, it was not deemed important and kind of brushed aside. But not anymore. Thanks to recent advances in the field, we have realized the tremendous importance of sleep for brain health and health in general. To discuss this, our guest in this episode is an incredibly experienced sleep specialist, our friend, Dr. Noah Siegel. He's the Director of Sleep Medicine and Surgery at Massachusetts Eye and Ear, a Harvard Medical School teaching hospital in Boston. He's board certified in both sleep medicine and otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, and is a clinical faculty at Massachusetts General Hospital. His approach is very unique as he doesn't focus on disease only and recognizes the tremendous role of lifestyle and prevention in treating one of the biggest health issues in Western countries, sleep disorders. This episode is definitely one of our favorites and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Dr. Noah Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to speak with you here about such an incredibly important topic. You know, one of the things that we get questions about is sleep and sleep apnea. And we are so fortunate to have this opportunity to speak with you and explore this incredibly important aspect of health in general, but specifically brain health. Welcome. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's nice to connect with you both after uh, having met you a couple of years ago. I'm not sure if you recall, but I also had a chance to meet your kids. They're just wonderful. So nice to connect. And uh, before we jump in, I just want to acknowledge and thank you guys for uh, your steadfast focus on keeping science front and center and all the work that you do and all the content that you produce. Your work is inspirational. It's, uh, it's really just a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, that's very kind of you. Of course, we remember um, <laughs> yes. Hilton Head. Hilton Head. We met at Hilton Head and we talked about you know so many different things and really looking forward to doing multiple projects with you in the future. Yeah. And the connection was right away around the idea that noble living is about honest living and and data-driven living. I mean, to be honest, that sentence doesn't sound like they should it should be together, but yeah things that we actually spread to the community, information that we spread to the community has to be data-driven. And uh, it was wonderful talking to you, an amazing sleep doctor. If, if anybody in the country should be highlighted for their work, it's you and what you've done and your, your track record speaks for itself. So having said that, we wanna jump into this most important of topics. There's a reason why we are knocked out one third of our life. We sleep and not just sleep, we're paralyzed. There must have been an evolutionary reason to sacrifice so much safety. And that for us, we're going to selfish, uh, we will focus it on uh, the brain and it is the brain. But first, what got you into this field, this amazing, important field? Yeah, so my first professional experience managing individuals with sleep issues uh, dates back to my residency. I'm both an otolaryngologist or an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, as well as a sleep medicine physician. And we spent quite a bit of time learning how to do surgical procedures. And back in the mid-1990s, a commonly performed procedure was something called a uvulopalatopharyngoplasty or UPPP, right? Mm -hmm. It was kind of the surgery. So in residency, we would learn how to do that procedure. But again, during residency, you're not necessarily seeing the patients before or the patients afterwards. And then fast forward, once I'm in practice, very regularly, I was seeing patients that would come into the office who were substantially overweight, had medical issues, poor lifestyle habits, severe sleep apnea, and essentially think that a, a surgical procedure could fix that. And, and the truth of the matter is, although it can be helpful in some instances, uh, it really was not getting at the root of the problem. And it became pretty clear early on that these individuals with sleep disorders really weren't getting uh, optimal care. And again, a combination of lifestyle factors and weight and sleep hygiene measures. So I became interested in as kind of an airway person, as 
his ear, nose, and throat docs are, I thought perhaps, you know, I could manage individuals with upper airway obstruction, sleep apnea. So I kind of dove in on studying sleep, really read everything I could read, started shadowing more experienced practitioners, opened up a sleep lab, and then by 2007, uh, became boarded in, in sleep medicine in addition to otolaryngology. And I have to say just the since that time, the practice of sleep medicine has just been tremendously rewarding, intellectually stimulating. On a day-to-day basis, I hear such profound statements from my patients as, Doc, you gave me back my life. I feel 15 years younger. I can finally sleep in the same bed as my spouse. Impact social lives now that they're not feeling so tired towards the end of the day. They can go out at night and enjoy more of what life has to offer. And uh, intellectually, there's, we're still trying to figure out sleep. It's a fairly new field and we're learning more and more and hopefully we uh, will unpack that. But it's, it's just been fantastic and continue to grow in the practice of sleep and, and love every day of it. That's amazing. And it's so fascinating. You're absolutely right how sleep impacts every aspect of our personality and our life. I mean, Dean and I, yesterday in my clinic, out of the 13 patients, I sent five of them for sleep studies because I knew that it was something that was not addressed when you look at their entire picture of health. We spoke offline about an episode from your internship. You know, we were we were talking about the impact of sleep on our health as residents and as physicians, and you were telling us a really interesting story. I want you to share it with the audience. Sure. So um, going back even a little bit further, uh, I did a, a year of general surgery internship, and this is before the time where there were work hour restrictions. So very commonly, we would be on call every other night, and the hours were were really probably, you know, in retrospect, a bit inappropriate, we would work 36 hours and then off. So one of the things that we would do each morning would be we would round on all of our patients and then get to the operating room to assist the attending surgeons in the surgical procedures. And this was one morning after I had been up all night and rounded in the morning, and it's probably somewhere between 7.30 and 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm standing across the table uh, from an attending surgeon. There's a patient between us, And I'm essentially assisting, holding retractors and perhaps cutting sutures. And during the surgical procedure, I fell asleep and I headbutted him across the table. Oh, my goodness. And (laughs) needless to say, um, he was not pleased. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He ended up kicking me out of the operating room. Fortunately, the patient was just fine. But I think it highlights kind of the impact of need for sleep that in such an important situation, literally, I was not able to maintain consciousness. So that was sort of, you know, for lack of better terms, kind of a wake up call. And it highlights kind of the need for adequate sleep. And, you know, since then, I think many people know that the medical field has instituted a a number of work hour restrictions where residents are able to go home and there's a maximum number of hours that can be worked per week. Yeah. Yeah. It came from a similar kind of a situation in New York where a a resident uh, or a a physician was uh, not having enough sleep and did not get enough sleep and he made a mistake. And his father, who was a journalist, I think, sued the system. And that's what the whole limitations of ours started with that case in New York City. Yeah. 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 Probably really long overdue. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just dive in into the science of it. Why why do we sleep? Sometimes I feel I'm going to I'm going to have so much more time to do things and be more productive and maybe live life a little, you know, more colorfully if I didn't have to sleep. Sometimes sleep seems like an inconvenience. Oh, why, why do we sleep? Sure. So I, I love this question. If I can simplify it, we sleep to live. Mm-hmm. is absolutely foundational to our survival. I almost liken the question of why do we sleep to the question of why do we breathe or why do we eat? Literally without it, um, we succumb. It is foundational to our survival. Sleep balances, restores, regulates, and optimizes virtually every one of our vital organ systems and hence our health and well-being. Another way you could sort of think about sleep is to to look at what happens in instances where we don't have uh, adequate sleep. We can virtually go system by system and look at the, the, the functions of sleep with respect to those systems 
as well as the things that go awry when we don't have optimal sleep. Things like the neurologic system, the immunologic system, the cardiovascular system, reproductive, endocrine, even there seems to be association with cancer. So again, to answer the question, why do we sleep? We sleep to live. And without it, essentially all of our body's organ systems can suffer dramatically. Amazing. It's so important that we've dedicated an entire field of medicine for it. So sleep medicine, what does that entail? Yeah, so sleep medicine is technically a newer field of medicine. And when I was board certified in it, that was the first year where there was official sort of board certification in sleep medicine. It's actually kind of interesting that it takes sort of everything that happens during sleep and piles it into a single specialty. It's almost like saying, well, there's sleep medicine and there's awake medicine, which doesn't really make sense. And the reason I say that is to highlight that the field is really diverse. It's a multidisciplinary field that's dedicated to the management of a full array of sleep disorders. So for example, neurologists like yourselves really have expertise in managing sleep conditions that are neurologically mediated, like narcolepsy, like nocturnal seizures, like restless legs or, or parasomnias, which are some of those unusual behaviors at night. There are psychologists and psychiatrists that manage insomnia ear, nose, and throat docs, and pulmonologists that manage more of the breathing issues. So it, it's really, it's a field of medicine that involves, you know, all the different types of conditions in and around the sleep field, but it's really quite diverse. Um, just for the audience's sake, I want to expand on sleep and why we sleep a little more, because it's not just humans that sleep. I mean, all animals that are sentient animals sleep, all primates sleep and all organisms that have a cortex sleep. This gives you an idea of the importance of sleep in this context. It gives you an idea of why evolutionarily we developed a process that knocks us out. We're actually paralyzed during sleep, aren't we? Uh, well, during Part of sleep, we have skeletal muscle. Our skeletal muscles are paralyzed. Obviously, we need our heart and our diaphragm. And obviously, you know, during REM sleep, our eyes are moving. So the, the sort of muscles that are involved in moving the eyes are still uh, functional. But we do have significant relaxation of our muscles during what we call non-REM sleep, stage one, two, and three. Correct. And that level of sacrifice should tell us everything. I mean, the, uh, the one thing about evolution is it's incredibly energy parsimonious. It, it wants to preserve energy. We're, especially when we're talking about the level of species, at the level of evolution, it wants to preserve energy at all costs. And it wants to, the second function is it wants to survive at all costs. Anything that increases survival is enhanced with evolution over, of course, generations, generations. To have a situation where you're not aware of your surroundings for eight hours, I want to emphasize this point because a lot of times, and, and we are involved in lifestyle medicine and you've been in these conferences, we get caught up in the blueberry and the, and the, some superfood here and superfood. Those are fantastic. But nothing should supersede the importance of sleep. Nothing because, you know, human evolution tells you that. Human evolution tells you that right there, not over a long period of time, but in your daily life, you're going to be knocked out for eight hours. You'll be insecure for eight hours. And all of that is for your long-term preservation, and you'll tell us a little bit more about genetics and everything else, and for, on our case, for your brain preservation, for us to talk about brain function and doing Sudoku. I know that I'm gonna be suited by the Sudoku company at one point, because <laughs> I keep picking on Sudoku. And not folk, or, or, or you know what, the funny thing is we get invited to these, um, these uh, conferences and, and these uh, um, uh, retreats, and all these retreats about the, you know, spa this and spa that and um, little gimmicks and, and people are wearing gowns. The greatest spa I say is your bedroom, your sleep, because that should be highlighted. Sleep is central. So I wanted to kind of delve into that a little more to give people that if you just take care of your sleep, you've done a significant part for your health in general. And if you don't, there's nothing that will replace that damage. Absolutely nothing. I mean, I think that's a wonderful points that you've made and that I think there's a famous quote somewhere in sleep that if sleep isn't absolutely vital for our survival, it's the biggest evolutionary mistake ever made. Like it just doesn't make sense that without. 
if you actually, if blood flow is a metric or indicative of the importance, we know, and people would think that blood flow to the brain during sleep would diminish, but in fact, it's preserved, if not more, during certain stages of sleep. So it used to be felt that, oh, it's just, it's energy preservation and it's go to sleep, but then you just kind of wake up in the morning, but it is, couldn't be more the opposite. It is an active process where our body is processing and restoring and revitalizing. I actually think uh, as neurologists, and I'm sure you know this, I think you've included this in the book you've written, but I think it's a perfect time to talk about the glymphatic system. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, which for the listeners that don't know, this is, think of it as a waste clearance pathway for the brain. I tell my patients that sleep is the equivalent of taking out the brain trash every night. So towards the end of the day, after being awake for hours or when you're really tired, if you think about it, like our brains just aren't functioning well. We can't concentrate as well. We're not as focused. Uh, perhaps we're a little bit moody. We're, perhaps we're not as pleasant to be around. And he said, well, why is that, right? Our brain fatigues over the course of the day and waste products accumulate over the course of the day, uh, including adenosine, is, which is uh, kind of a side note here. But when we go to sleep at night, all of that magically clears away and we wake up feeling refreshed and restored. And all of a sudden, many of those symptoms that we had the day before, being moody and tired, not being able to focus are gone. And it was in 2012 at the University of Rochester, as you know, uh, that the glymphatic system was better characterized. And what we know happens is that there's sort of, there's a widening of these spaces between the neural cells that allows these waste products to be cleared out of the central nervous system, right? It sort of mixes with the, the CSF. There's a pulsing sensation of the arterial blood, you know, the arteries in the brain, which helps take out the so-called brain trash. And included in that are things like amyloid beta and tau protein, which seems to be associated with neurocognitive decline. And uh, I know you know quite a bit about that. But just in addition to that, we know sleep helps um, you know, consolidate memory improve our productivity. It's associated with improved executive function. It is just so foundational to brain health. I feel like I'm kind of preaching to the choir because I know you know this well. No, no, no. But, but this is for audience and, yes. and we are learning all the time anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I create analogies in my clinic of how you know the garbage truck gets activated when you go to sleep and it comes in. It's like you know your brain is like an empty building and the janitors come in and they clean up the building and it's an absolutely necessary process for the building to function properly and for people to continue to use it. It's really important. And when you create that kind of a picture of the glymphatic system getting activated and, you know, doing a profound job of cleansing the brain, it makes sense. It makes sense. And then people don't take it lightly. They make sure that they sleep well and they make it almost a routine and a process to to get that uh, restorative sleep going. Just on the genetics of this, I mean, sorry, I'm going to bring the Alzheimer's component. One group of genes for Alzheimer's that that have been associated with Alzheimer's are waste disposal genes. So if um, all of us have different degrees of those, that gene, expression of that gene, right? The penetrance of that gene. And so if you have bad genes for waste disposal, and all of us have, none of us have perfect, but different degrees, then if we, as you're accumulating waste during the day, and, and my God, if, if there's an organ that's accumulating and creating waste more than any other because it's more active than any other, it's the brain, then it has to be eliminated, especially in its hermetically closed environment with the blood-brain barrier. It has to eliminate that waste. Well, guess what? That's what sleep is for. And if you're not getting one night's sleep, as you say and everybody else, it's, it's devastating to the brain. So that's why we... We want our audience to learn from the best uh, about the basics of sleep. And I'm so glad you're here because you see patients. You're not, you know, researchers are great, but you see patients. You deal with them every single day. So you have firsthand experience of what they go through and what happens when you institute the right kind of treatment. So let's talk about the sleep disorders, you know, in general, the class. Um, what What are some of the sleep disorders and, you know, what can go wrong with one's sleep? So when I think about sleep, I categorize sleep problems into those of sleep quantity, those of sleep quality, and then what I'm going to kind of call masqueraders, right? And we'll we'll come back to that. But sleep quantity are individuals that essentially aren't having enough sleep, right? And the pathophysiologic implications of insufficient sleep are not too much different from those with problems with sleep 
quality. So examples of issues with quantity would be simply insufficient sleep, individuals who are chronically sleep deprived, those with insomnia, those with prom- commonly people with circadian rhythm disorders or timing of sleep will commonly have insufficient quantity uh, of sleep. Next, there are what I'm going to call uh, sort of issues with sleep quality. So although an individual may go to sleep, the sleep is a poor quality. It's fragmented, and that person may not be benefiting from getting into deep sleep and REM sleep. And we should probably talk a little bit about the different stages of sleep. Um, other intrinsic sleep disorders may be narcolepsy, uh, or well, I think I, I mentioned the term parasomnia before, where there's unusual behaviors that occur during sleep. And lastly, uh, I'm going to throw in there what I'm going to call masqueraders. Now, these are not intrinsically sleep disorders, but commonly a patient will come in and describe feeling tired or pokey or fatigued or having sort of lack of motivation. And it's it, there's a gray area between a true propensity to fall asleep and kind of feeling chronically fatigued. Now, these can be medical issues and these can be psychological issues or psychiatric issues. And some of these masqueraders may include hypothyroidism or anemia or low testosterone levels or chronic pain issues or medication side effects, neurologic conditions like multiple sclerosis is notorious for feeling fatigued and tired, metabolic issues, um, even perhaps poor diet can contribute. So I'll say to my patients, hey, there are hundreds of reasons why you may feel sleepy or tired and sleep apnea can be, is one of them or maybe one of them in you. So I think it highlights the fact that we need to, you know, take off our blinders to some extent and not just necessarily focus on an individual sleep apnea and recognize that there are probably, or there can be uh, sleep hygiene issues, metabolic issues, problems with sleep hygiene, that any of those things can be also contributing to an individual sleep quality. So again, I kind of break it down to quantity, quality, and then so-called masqueraders. Now, I'll also say, like, when, when I think about what can go wrong with sleep, to me, the holy grail of sleep is seven or eight hours of consolidated, uninterrupted, consistent sleep each night where we'll have three to five sleep cycles lasting somewhere from 90 minutes. And anything that takes us away from that will result in some sort of symptoms or physiologic effects. And there's so many things that can take us away from that, you know, sleep hygiene and sleep disorders. But uh, again, that's, this highlights why we need, why this is such a multidisciplinary field, because there's so many different things that can go wrong. Yeah. Fascinating. What do you say to someone who keeps saying that they only need five hours of sleep and they've done that since their teen years. What's your answer for that so, question? So first of all, it's always a man. Yes. <laughs> I only need four hours of sleep. I'm fine. In, in fact, that individual will also say, boy, I'm great at sleeping. I can fall asleep anytime. I'm like, well, maybe that's a symptom that you're not <laughs> Every time you sit down, you can fall asleep. But he, and again, usually it's a he, doesn't really have the insight. This is usually sort of self-imposed and there's lack of insight that they really are not adequately benefiting. And there's a study after study after study about the implications of inadequate sleep, be it you know cognitive or be it immunologic and be it cardiovascular. It really does take quite a bit of uh, education and and it's in the partner, usually it's it's the wife or, or spouse or you know husband. Uh, that will essentially say, you know, you are always dead tired. You think that you're fine, but you're not. And a lot of times it just becomes an education thing where we have to truly take our time and go through all the implications of inadequate sleep. But it's, it's, it's a common story, particularly in kind of the young to middle-aged man. And we see that in our clinic all the time, somebody coming in with cognitive impairment. And, you know, after getting a really good history, you find out that they really haven't had optimal sleep for such a long time. It it always points to sleep. And once you address that, and once you find out what the problem is, and they go through the whole, you know, treatment, it's it's a completely different person. And, And you're right, it's always a man. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's definitely always a man. Yeah. The, the treatment is so simple. Sleep more. Yeah. 
so hard to implement because <laughs> you need that buy-in, right? Yes. Absolutely. So maybe you can describe the different stages of sleep and what happens in each of these uh, stages. Sure. So sleep is divided into two, there are sort of two different types of sleep. There's REM sleep, which we touched on a little bit before, and then there's non-REM sleep. And non-REM sleep is divided into stage one, stage two, and stage three. It's sometimes called N1, N2, or N3. Stage one sleep is, again, part of non-REM sleep, and it generally occupies about 5% of the night. And it's really probably considered more of a transition state to the deeper stages of sleep. We don't think too much happens during stage one sleep. Stage two sleep should occupy, in an individual with normal, what we call sleep architecture, should occupy about 50% of the night. During stage two sleep, our heart rate drops, our blood pressure drops, our respiration slows. There are certain physiologic uh, events that we see when we do EEG tracings, which are called sleep spindles and K-complexes. And we think that stage two sleep and non-REM sleep in general is very important for our brains to help with memory, with memory consolidation. In fact, many people think that the density of these, these sleep spindles help prime our brain for receiving new information, and then consolidating memory. We also think that stage two sleep is associated with, uh, with sensory processing. Amazing. Yeah. And now stage three sleep, which is, should occupy about 25% of the night. It's also known as deep sleep or slow wave sleep. And, and electrophysiologically, there's big amplitude, slow waves. That's why it's called slow wave sleep. Like stage two sleep, we see a drop in the heart rate, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. And we think that the primary function of stage three sleep or N3 sleep is recovery. This is also when the lymphatic system is most active. It's when growth hormone is secreted. We believe that uh, cellular repair and DNA repair primarily happens during stage three sleep. Similar to uh, stage two sleep, it seems to be associated with memory. And you, you both know that there's different types of memory. There's sort of what, what we're going to call declarative or explicit memory, which is memory for, for facts and such. Think of, say, state capitals, where more, that's more of a non-REM function than non-declarative, which is associated with REM. And we also we know that with aging, stage three sleep tends to decrease, which is interesting because... As we talked about, if stage three is, is important for recovery and memory consolidation, there's it, perhaps there's an association with uh, some components of aging with respect to the amount of slow wave sleep an individual gets. So a young person will have a, a much higher percentage of slow wave sleep and that erodes over time. And a lot of research going on in the field right now is looking at ways to help prolong and maintain slow wave sleep, perhaps as a way to help uh, minimize the implications of aging. And last, there's REM sleep. People have certainly heard of REM sleep. It's supposed to occupy about 20 to 25% of the night. Generally speaking, it's more in the second half of the night. We all know it's associated with uh, muscle paralysis, and that tends to be when we dream. And, and REM sleep seems to be most closely associated with also memory consolidation, more what we call non-declarative memory, and that's the procedural stuff. That would be learning to ride a bike or playing music or perhaps learning how to do a surgical procedure. That's thought more to be related to REM sleep. And also the current science believes that REM sleep is also associated with uh, cardiovascular system maintenance, more mood regulation, as well as mental health regulation. Amazing. And for the audience, uh, perhaps I can add a link to uh, a picture or a diagram of the stages of sleep and the different kind of waves that you were talking about so they can go and take a look at it. I think that would be very helpful. Amazing. It's just, it, it's so fascinating. I get excited thinking about sleep and how our brain functions in the different stages of sleep. One thing I wanted to ask is, uh, it, it, uh, for me, I, I hear these things and all of a sudden I'm thinking about research and implications in the future. You talked about altering stage three sleep. We always talk about stage one, which is that going into sleep and that and there are many techniques, but how? what are some of the thoughts as far as altering stage three? Because to me, if you can you know, 
prolongate and deepen that function, be it stage three or REM, that's going to have significant effect on the brain. Yeah, to me, this is, to me, I think of this as sort of the ultimate biohacking. If I can mm -hmm. do something to help increase the amount of this restorative recovery sleep, perhaps we can achieve the benefits of a full night's sleep in less time. And I, I want to be very clear, I'm not suggesting that we cut down our sleep duration, but perhaps in aging, there's some implications. So there are a number of labs right now that are taking individuals in a sleep lab. And when they see an individual enter slow wave sleep, so you can see the brain waves change, they're providing stimuli to those individuals that can hopefully help prolong the duration of time spent in slow wave sleep. These, tend, these stimuli tend to be auditory at certain mm -hmm. frequencies. So the labs are experimenting with different frequencies of sound, which are potentially associated with prolonging the amount of slow wave sleep, which is just fascinating. It is. It is. That's exciting. I mean, absolutely. It is the ultimate biohacking. You know, we see all these conferences on biohacking. It usually has to do with a bar or a chemical, you know. No, it's, it's much more uh, sophisticated than that. Thank you. Yeah. So give us a glimpse of what you see in your clinic. What's the percentage of people that have difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep and turn to you and other sleep specialists for help? Yeah. So all comers of all individuals, well, I should say in an adult population, the incidence of insomnia is probably about 10%. So about 10% incidence of insomnia. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, I'm going to leave children out of this because they have different types of insomnia. But in adults, individuals uh, that will complain of difficulty either initiating or maintaining sleep, by definition, to meet the diagnosis of insomnia, it needs to take an individual 30 minutes, at least three times a week to initiate sleep, they need to have adequate opportunity for sleep, meaning enough time in bed. Uh, and lastly, there needs to be some sort of daytime impairment. And if that lasts for more than three months, it's considered chronic insomnia. And there's different flavors of chronic insomnia, of course. But we also have to remember that many individuals that walk through the door, although my focus tends to be breathing issues, it's very common that these individuals, and almost counterintuitively, although they may not be sleeping well because they're not breathing well, still have issues with maintaining and initiating sleep. So it's, it's likely that individuals with sleep apnea who have these frequent arousals at night will, will awaken easier uh, and sometimes have difficulty falling back asleep. Uh, and the causes for this are, 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 are huge. I mean, it, can't be, um, it could be a noisy bed partner. It could be the rumination, which is which is quite common. The 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 uh, thinking about what didn't happen yesterday, what might happen tomorrow, and what how could have unfolded, and and watching the clock and worrying about, am I going to be able to function tomorrow if I don't fall asleep? It could be an uncomfortable bed surface. It could be chronic pain. It could be medication side effects. So again, there's so many different components to optimizing uh, sleep. And everyone's kind of looking for that quick fix, as we know, like they want right. to go to the doctor and, you know, walk out with the solution to the problem. And, and as we unpack an individual story, we find out that it, there's, there's many different components to just about anybody's sleep issue. Absolutely. I mean, as, as we were talking even prior to this uh, conversation, um, in our clinic, and, and Aisha sees a lot of stroke patients and vascular disorders, and I see a lot of cognitive disorders. It, the, the sleep disorders are ubiquitous. It's uh, every single patient. I think we, we send about 50% of them to a sleep lab. But even outside of that, everybody else has some kind of sleep disorder. And some of them say, oh, I'm fine. I sleep nine to 10 hours a day. Well, that's a problem. There's, there, uh, we, uh, you know, that's a sign. That's a symptom, as you said before. So um, yeah, uh, we everybody who's in the clinical field or um, uh, or sees individuals for their health should be aware of sleep as central to making any change. Now here's a question that almost everybody wants to know, and this was one of the most common questions we got when I announced that we were going to be speaking with you on social media. What are your thoughts on sleeping pills? Um, well, sleeping pills are a little bit of a soapbox issue for me. So, so bear with me. I think we all know that it's extremely common for people this day and age to sort of self-medicate. People are 
with prescription medications, with alcohol, with THC or CBD, trying to help themselves initiate sleep. And, and unfortunately, it's such a common story that we'll wake up in the morning and we use some sort of substance, usually it's caffeine, to help us kind of get up and go, 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 go. And we go all day and then we want something to kind of turn it off, right? Mm-hmm. That may be some sort of sleeping pill or some sort of substance that will help kind of quiet us. I, I think it's important to, to make the point that sleeping pills sedate people and sedation is not sleep. Mm. So sleeping pills sedate people. So uh, it's important to, to recognize it's, that being sedated is really not the same as natural restorative sleep, right? And these chemicals uh, work to kind of quiet the electrical activity in our brains, but they're not necessarily leading us down this, this really miraculous and amazing complex that involves neurochemical communications between certain regions of our brain, primarily between our hypothalamus and our cortex. There's multiple neurotransmitters that are involved in this sort of this switch, switching on and off of our consciousness, right? And these medications uh, sort of bypass that. So I can tell you that, I mean, we can go into the different medications if you guys want to, but I can tell you as a sleep doctor, I do not prescribe sleeping pills. Mm. I want people to to kind of get a sense of that. We have a world-renowned person who treats sleep every day. That's, That's what he does. And he doesn't prescribe sleep medication. And it's so easy for us. And it's, it's uh, in fact, it's a motivation for doctors to prescribe sleep medication because it feels good. That's actually the whole impetus behind too much prescriptive medicine is because when a patient leaves an office, there have been studies on this. If a doctor didn't give them pills, they actually got a lower score, irrespective of their patient's previous belief systems. And so this motivation to give pills, yet you're right, we don't give sleep medications and you as a sleep doctor don't prescribe sleep medication. Yeah, I mean, I think of it as my, my job as a physician is to, to do the best I can for a patient. I, and I truly feel that prescribing this you know, sedative is more of a band-aid approach and it's not in their best interest. Uh, I, I think of it as, as a band-aid approach where not that individual is really bypassing this innate ability that we all have to hopefully initiate our own sleep. And over time, people will develop both a physical and a mental dependence on these substances. I can tell you that patients that I used to prescribe sleeping pills for, uh, I've changed my practice over the past several years. I guarantee that when their pills start start running low, they will be calling, they will be coming to the front desk, they will be sending me messages saying, I need to refill my medication because they are so worried that they're not going to be able to fall asleep without it. And it's probably true because they've, that's, that there's a physical dependence and probably just as much kind of a psychological dependence to that. People tend to develop tolerance to these medications. We know there's a risk of rebound insomnia when these medications are stopped. And I also really concern, uh, get concerned about an older population on sleeping pills. So, and what I'm worried about is falls. So if an, if an older individual who probably has some degree of muscle weakness, probably has some visual impairment, probably needs to get up to urinate during the course of the night, is also sedated with a chemical, to me, that's the recipe for a fall. And I would really be doing them a disservice if I sort of tip the scales more in the direction of them falling. And we all know that a fall in an older person with a broken hip, it's sort of sobering how things unfold after a broken hip in an elderly person. So I feel very strongly that we need to take a step back, avoid the medications, create routine, implement uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, rather than the, the easy quick fix, which is sort of throw a sedating medication at an individual and say, okay, next patient. Yeah, for us as neurologists, when somebody comes in with insomnia, the medications themselves have very strong cognitive side effects and it can profoundly, you know, change the course of their disease or, you know, make their symptoms worse. So I completely agree with you. I think that's not the first thing to initiate. Let's talk about your bread and butter, (laughs) snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. That's something that you specialize in as an ENT specialist. And I know that you straddle the medical sleep world and surgical sleep world and the dental sleep world. And this is what you've been, 
you've been focusing on. So, so give us an idea of what obstructive sleep apnea is so that the audience can better understand it. Sure. So obstructive sleep apnea is a medical condition that impacts the quality of an individual's sleep. So it takes us away from that single period of consolidated sleep where we will uh, cycle through the different stages of sleep. With sleep apnea, we'll have repetitive narrowings and obstruction of the upper airways, right? So the airways narrow repetitively. And when that occurs, our oxygen levels dip down. So our blood oxygen levels, which should typically be 95% and up, may dip down. And then this will also result in fragmentation of our sleep. So we're getting poor sleep quality. And there, there are a significant number of sort of pathophysiologic implications of these repetitive awakenings over the course of the night. So these individuals, although they may, you know, what may feel, may sleep for a while, the quality of the sleep that they're getting is, is very poor and they don't feel refreshed in the morning. So the common symptoms would be snoring, non-restorative sleep, excessive daytime sleepiness, and commonly there'll be a bed partner or somebody that's observed their sleep that will say, well, this individual stops breathing and, you know, sometimes can be rather scary at night. Mm-hmm. Are there times when it's not noticeable if somebody has obstructive sleep apnea and they don't have the overt symptoms? So far and away, more often than not, an individual will have uh, snoring. Uh, however, there can also be something we call upper airway resistance syndrome, where there may just be sort of heavy breathing and under breathing, or that can cause EEG arousals, right? So we call that upper airway resistance syndrome, where the, again, the airways are narrow, and that may result in fragmentation of sleep. But generally speaking, those with OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, will make noise. There there happens to be another condition called central sleep apnea, where there may not necessarily be any noise at all, but yet there are repetitive episodes where an individual stops breathing. Those seem to be associated more with neurologic conditions and severe cardiovascular issues like congestive Mm -hmm. heart failure, as well as individuals who are taking narcotics. So one of the hallmarks of narcotic use is uh, episodes of central apnea. So if I'm looking at a sleep setting, I see a lot of central apneas, I'm certainly going to focus on their medication list. So so with respect to obstruction, generally, there will be uh, snoring, um, varying degrees of sleepiness. And it, it probably has a little bit to do with, with an individual's comorbidities or how the, an individual's age, um, or how resistant they are, or the particular characteristic of their breathing events with respect to what their symptoms may be during the day. Yeah, I see a lot of central sleep apnea in stroke patients. What are some of the risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea? Because a lot of people think that, you know, gaining weight and being overweight results in obstructive sleep apnea. Is that it or are there more? Well, definitely weight is a contributor. And I want, I I like to make the point that it's not the size of of the individual, it's the size of their airway during sleep. So it's not necessarily just weight or BMI, uh, but also within weight, it can be related to how an individual carries their weight. Some people tend to carry their weight more on their trunk, where some people may carry their weight lower down on their body. People talk about kind of a body type as an apple, which tends to be more men, where there's more trunkal weight, neck, chest, abdomen, where they're, uh, in contrast, um, there may be someone who's what we call pear-shaped more, where the weight is carried lower in the body, more hips, waist, and butt, and that tends to be more of a, a female phenotype. And you can imagine that if, if uh, someone that's more pear-shaped loses weight, it's not going to affect their upper airways quite as much as somebody who carries their weight higher on their body. So yes, weight can be a contributor, but not necessarily. And obviously, that's soft tissue. There are also skeletal anomalies. So individuals who are syndromic, those that have maybe a short mandible or what we call mid-face hyperplasia, where the mid part of their face is recessed. There seems to be certain um, certain nationalities where there's more of a shortened mid-face, tends to be more Asian populations. It tends to run in families. Risk factor may also be sleeping on the back, and that just really has to do with the forces of gravity. So if I'm flat on my back, looking up towards the sky, the, the vectors of gravity are narrowing my airway front to back. And so in particular, my soft palate and my tongue may be narrowing my airway. So an individual that sleeps on their back is more likely to have breathing issues than somebody that sleeps on their side. There's an association with neck circumference. 
as you would imagine, kind of the, the bigger the neck, the more tissue there is in the neck. And once the body relaxes during sleep, it's more likely narrow. We say 17 inches in men and either 15 and a half or 16 inches in, in women. And the nasal obstruction is probably also a contributor in many people. I see. How do you make a diagnosis? You know, I'm sure that it's not just a quick visit, but a complex analysis of their lifestyle, of their body habitus, and some of the other vascular risk factors that helps us come to a conclusion that this is sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea specifically. Yeah. So like any patient that walks through the door, we do a history, we do an examination, Primarily to confirm a diagnosis of sleep apnea, we'll do a sleep study. I, I tell people it's kind of analogous. If I suspect a person has blood pressure, I gotta I gotta take their blood pressure. I gotta check their blood pressure. If I suspect an individual has sleep apnea, I need to study their sleep, right? And the way that we do that is while an individual is is asleep, we collect data, we collect information from that person. And it used to be that we pretty much only did these in the in a laboratory, which is for anyone that's been through a full in-laboratory sleep study, it's a long night. There's a lot of um, channels, a lot of uh, um, points of contact in the body. And it's, obviously, it's not your own bed and there's somebody watching you. And it's really, it's, it's an unusual situation. But in recent years, we've moved much more uh, in the direction of doing home sleep testing, mm-hmm. which place obviously in an individual's home, um, much more comfortable, much more likely to represent what their typical sleep is like. And similarly, we gather information essentially about breathing. Like when you make a diagnosis of sleep apnea, we want to see, does an individual stop breathing or not, right? And if they do, how frequently is that happening? So we're monitoring airflow, we're monitoring chest and abdominal movement, and we're monitoring oxygen levels primarily. Mm-hmm. And then after that, that data is collected, it'll be reviewed and then uh, discussed with the patient. And then we start talking about treatment options. I had a similar test myself. We kind of suspected that maybe I was having sleep apnea I was uh, snoring a little bit, or at least Aisha said I was snoring. I didn't. I didn't complain about her snoring. <laughs> she complained about my. Snoring. Come so. on, I don't snore. <laughs> no, not at all. No, no, you, you're too delicate for snoring. No, but, you can't say that on a podcast. <laughs> of course I can. No, so I, I we did the home uh, device, and thank goodness it, it said that I wasn't snoring. And the device actually said that your partner is uh, snoring loudly and must be emergently <laughs> brought to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm no, but yeah, so it was much, much better. Uh, of course, there are times that you need to do it in the clinic. The, uh, there are uh, the home one might not be optimal for that. But with the new devices, this, they had this wire that went around my chest and uh, the, the pulse ox arm on my yeah. finger and uh, the nasal thing. And it actually was not that intrusive. And I'm I'm one that gets bothered by these things easily. And it was very good. And they, they collected really copious amounts of information that they could um, operationalize. And it was wonderful. Yeah, easy. I'm really glad you did it. But it was easy. I, you know, when, and being in, the, in that world, you know the implications of untreated obstructive sleep apnea, you know, how it'll affect every system in your body. And uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, for the listeners to to hear it from you. What are what happens when someone has obstructive sleep apnea and they don't seek help or treatment for it? So I, I break down the implications of untreated sleep apnea into sort of three buckets. Bucket number one is people just feel lousy. They feel tired. They're not thriving in their day-to-day function, functioning. And it's horrible. It's horrible to have to kind of try your best to sort of trudge through life um, if you're, you're not functioning optimally in a day-to-day basis. Bucket number two is that um, the implications of this are that it's commonly disrupting your bed partner. And that can be a big deal. I mean, it may be a little bit of a joke at times, but it's it's not a joke when people are sleeping in, in separate bedrooms or uh, it's a point of contention in a relationship. Uh, it can impact a, a sexual relationship. So again, it's it's you, this is not happening in isolation for many people if there's a bed partner. But lastly, the third bucket is that untreated sleep apnea is very stressful to the body. Right. If you're not sleeping well, if you're not breathing well, you're not sleeping well. And if you're not sleeping well, it's stressful. And untreated sleep apnea raises the risk for a number of conditions. Cardiovascular issues are the ones that seem to be most focused on. And in particular, we know that untreated sleep apnea is an independent risk factor for hypertension, 
There are many studies like the Sleep Heart Health Study and the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort that show that all-cause mortality is significantly higher with untreated sleep apnea. The cardiovascular, fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events go dramatically up in untreated sleep apnea. With respect to atrial fibrillation, there's great data there that the likelihood of an individual with sleep apnea flipping in and out of atrial fibrillation is much higher if they have untreated sleep apnea. We know, you know, obviously, Aisha, you know very well that that's a risk factor for stroke. And the other thing which, I, which, which has been really interesting, over the past 15 years, I've been going to many, many sleep meetings. And uh, the implications of untreated sleep apnea used to really primarily be all about the heart. You know, cardiovascular risk factors, heart attack, stroke, irregular heart rhythm, sudden cardiac death. But in recent years, we've been seeing, and those are all true, certainly, but in recent years, we've been seeing more of a shift in focus of the research and the discussion at the meeting more towards brain health, mm-hmm. towards cognition, executive function, memory, aging, productivity. So we're seeing more and more of that. It's fascinating. And you know, some of the population data that has uh, come forward shows that untreated obstructive sleep apnea is a major risk for Alzheimer's disease. There was a paper that was published from the University of Florida, I think it was in 2016, 2015 or 16, and it showed that untreated sleep apnea resulted in 70% increased risk of development of Alzheimer's disease, which is profound oh. if you look at that number. And, and it, it makes sense. It makes sense um, when you look at you know the, uh, the pathophysiology. Speaking of treatments, what are some of the options for uh, treatment of obstructive sleep sure. apnea? Sure. So if we take a step back and we, and we think of sleep apnea as airway obstruction, any treatment is designed to open the airway or help improve airway patency. And you can do that in multiple different ways. Far and away, the most common proven treatment is using pressurized air to do that. So that's most commonly known as, as CPAP, which stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. It's nearly 100% effective, and we've got good long-term data to show that, that treatment with, sleep for, with CPAP for sleep apnea substantially mitigates many of these cardiovascular risks. We don't have as good a data with respect to the neurologic implications, but with respect to the cardiovascular ones, uh, we do. The problem with CPAP, and nobody prescribes more CPAP than myself, the problem with it is that uh, it's hard to tolerate. Mm -hmm. And if it were a a simple uh, device that's easy for people to tolerate, we probably wouldn't need alternative therapies because using some sort of positive airway pressure therapy is so highly effective. And by the way, it's not necessarily just CPAP. There's different types of positive airway pressure like BiPAP, something called ASV. We use auto-adjusting. But anyway, in the end, these are all just using pressurized air to keep the airway open. Our engineers, engineer friends like to call it a pneumatic stent, right? Mm-hmm. So it's stenting the airway open using pressurized air. But in that large percentage of individuals that can't tolerate CPAP, we look for other treatment options. And those other treatment options to keep the airway open may include surgical procedures, where essentially what you're doing is you're modifying, you're, you're making the airway bigger, you're making the hole bigger by removing tissue, by manipulating tissue, by modulating or uh, tailoring the tissue to help keep the airway patent. There's also something called oral appliance therapy, which are uh, devices that are worn in the mouth that help keep the airway open by advancing the lower jaw. So these are sometimes called mentibular advancement devices. Certainly weight loss and positional therapy should also have been on that list probably first. In addition, there is a, a newer device on the market, which is an implantable device called the hypoglossal nerve stimulator, which is also FDA approved for the management of sleep apnea. Hmm. And that's be, we're starting to see that progressively more and more as a good treatment option. So the idea behind that is that a device is implanted into the body. It's an actually implanted device that by using sensors that interdigitate with the intercostal muscles, uh, we can couple electrical stimulus to the hypoglossal nerve, which is a nerve that goes to the tongue to help keep the airway open. So it's implantable device. And with each respiration, an electrical impulse is delivered to the distal end, to the far end of the hypoglossal nerve, which keeps the airway patent. It's just fascinating, phenomenal. And 
here in my program, we have a, a, a we've done many of these, and the results are just amazing. That, that, that's remarkable. That is so cool. That is amazing. Yeah. And what's what's on the horizon? What else are you seeing as far as technology in the future of sleep disorders are concerned? So, with respect to sleep apnea. The future is what I'm going to refer to as, as phenotyping, right? So we're recognizing that it's it's much more than just the anatomy, right? It's not just somebody with a big tongue or soft palate. Physiology is playing a significant role. And this is being studied in a, in a number of different labs, including one that's right across the street from where I'm sitting. And, and what we're starting to recognize is that although anatomy is the major contributor to obstructive sleep apnea, there are physiologic components. And those may have to do with, and they kind of are grouped into three buckets. There's airway dilator muscle activity. So some people, when you, when you experimentally induce negative pressure in the airway, these muscles become very active. In others, they don't. And we know that if somebody has a problem with their upper airway muscle dilation, you can target them in different ways. So it has to do with patient selection. So they may be a good candidate for a nerve implant or airway muscle training, or perhaps even some medications are thought to increase genoglossal muscle activity, and that's the tongue muscle. We know that there are some people that have a different mechanism, which is their arousal threshold is different. They have a very low arousal. So what means what I mean by that is little perturbations in their breathing may wake that individual up, right? And we can also experimentally examine that so that some of these individuals wake up very easily, the so-called light sleepers. And there may be a role in the future, not now, but if we can raise that arousal threshold using medications, they're less likely to have fragmented sleep. And which is just super fascinating. And lastly, there are some individuals, what I'm going to call unstable uh, respiratory control. So when there are changes in their blood chemistry, they overreact. So we all, if we think back to some of our breathing physiology, it has to do with CO2 levels and our oxygen levels. So people's um, responses to these changes in our blood chemistry are, are exaggerated. Right, we call we we call it unstable respiratory control. So there are certain sometimes delivering oxygen and sometimes using certain medications like diamox or acetazolamide uh, that change our body chemistry can help minimize the impact of this unstable respiratory uh, control. Anyway, just fascinating. So I think again, primarily it's an anatomic issue, but there are all these physiologic things that that are factoring in. And if I could predict the future. The way we're going to work up people uh, down the road is combining both anatomic findings with sleep study findings with more physiologic measures as to what's actually happening during their sleep. So any really interesting stuff. So the possibility in the future of me turning off one side of the brain and putting it to sleep while the other side is working and then flipping back and forth, that's not in the near future, is it? I would love that. <laughs> I, think we, I think we should work on that. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a good Absolutely. research project. Yeah. But it, it sounds it sounds like even the world of obstructive sleep apnea is moving more towards, you know, precision medicine or personalized medicine where it's not a general, you know, rule applicable to many people, but finding out everybody's nuances and their characteristics and shaping the treatment for them. Absolutely. It's it's when again our metric is this thing we call an apnea hypopnea index, which is the number of breathing episodes per hour. But an apnea could be 10 seconds long with a, a minor drop in the O2 saturation, or it can be a minute and a half long with a dramatic drop, right? But yet it's still one event. And that's just a function of, uh, of uh, our arousal thresholds maybe being very, very different. And the pathophysiologic implications or the implications of untreated sleep apnea actually correlates better with oxygen levels than it does with the number of breathing events per hour. So I think if I could predict the future, we're going to get a lot smarter about and more precise uh, in the way that we diagnose sleep apnea. We're going to be able to tailor our therapies more based on physiology uh, going forward. And I think, Aisha, you, you, you hit the nail on the head when you saw a precision medicine and personalized approach that will absolutely be front and center in the field of, uh, of sleep medicine going forward. 
I have to ask you, because this is a very common question, what are your thoughts about these wearable devices in the market and, you know, giving us really fancy diagrams and graphs telling us what our sleep pattern is? What do you think? So, first of all, none of these wearables are directly measuring sleep. We're not there yet. We measure sleep by looking at brain waves. So, any of these devices are looking at surrogates of sleep, which may include fairly fancy algorithms involving oxygen saturation and movement and maybe even breathing and maybe sound. We're not quite there yet. When I see patients, they'll, they are so eager every day to show me what their, what their tracking device. And, I, and I'll look at it and say, okay, fine. And, and I think to some extent, these are these are okay to, to use to, to monitor changes. Like if it was very fragmented here and then we did some sort of intervention and it looks better down the road, I'm okay with that. I'm not yet at a point where I'll kind of hang my hat on uh, any of the data yet that I'm seeing from the wearables. Having said that, there are a couple of devices on the market that seem to have reasonably good algorithms that can to some extent predict wake versus sleep versus different staging of sleep. I think there's much more to come there. And I think that's actually really important going forward in terms of monitoring an individual once they're being treated for, say, sleep apnea or something, uh, so that we can get information from their wearable devices relative to how effective whatever treatment we've implemented uh, is, be it surgery or oral appliance therapy or even CPAP. So we're going in that direction. I'm not quite there yet, but it's coming. Uh, That's so incredibly helpful. Thank you for that. So... What would be your top three take-home points for someone who wants to optimize their sleep? I hope that anyone that's listened this far, we've convinced that uh, it's important to, number one, just guard and protect your sleep. It is absolutely foundational. Keep that regular routine. Keep it consistent, hopefully between weekends and weekdays. If, if, you, if you need to send an alarm on, on a weekday, it probably means you're not getting enough sleep. If you feel the need to sleep in on the weekends, similarly, you're probably not getting enough sleep during the week. So number one, guard and protect your sleep. Number two is watch the substances. There are a number of substances that uh, we're exposed to or ingest each day that will impact our sleep. Those include caffeine, alcohol, and bright light. We didn't talk too much about bright light, but bright light will definitely impact our sleep. It's, it's tied to um, secretion of melatonin, uh, so minimizing light towards the end of the day. So number two would be watch the substances, primarily caffeine, alcohol, and light. And lastly, obviously, I, I'm going to, uh, as someone that works quite a bit in the, in the breathing space, if you have loud snoring or if you've been told by an observer of your sleep that you're not breathing well, that you're stopping uh, breathing, please have that checked out. The, the implications of untreated sleep apnea are profound. And it, it really is something that shouldn't be a joke in the household that should be taken seriously and checked out. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. I, you know, I think, I feel we can talk about this even more. I actually have to tell uh, the listeners that you and your family have been plant-based for about five years. Am I right? That's correct. How, how did you go into that direction? So we, we, when, when we began, it was primarily for health reasons. It was, it was probably, um, I can pinpoint it, it was uh, a lecture that I heard by Michael Greger that uh, was just so impactful. He basically looked at the top 10 causes of death and how the majority of these causes of death can be directly tied to uh, diet. And it, to some extent, it was I was embarrassed that as a physician and my wife is a physician, this was not front and center. We hadn't fully recognized this. And after seeing that and, and educating ourselves, it was a no-brainer for us. It was something that we could not do for ourselves and not do for our children. So it initially began as a health reason, but since that, or, or for health reasons, but since then, it's also felt quite right from an environmental perspective, as well as toward in a, from the perspective of uh, the treatment of the animals that cohabitate this planet with us. It just, it feels so right in so many ways. And it's, it's something that we feel pretty strongly about. And uh, that lifestyle decision ties in nicely to the overall practice of sleep medicine as well, that many of the lifestyle factors that we choose for ourselves or recommend to our patients uh, can be just so 
profoundly impactful in our day-to-day lives. We definitely agree. I mean, that was our journey as well, similar, but uh, 17 years ago when we first met, Aisha and I, in fact, one of our first conversations was about the same thing. Again, Noah, this has been amazing. You're a wealth of information, and we, we are going to be working together uh, in many ways going forward. We we love having you as a, you know, as not just a talking, somebody who just talks, but does the work, does the research, and knows the, the information from a perspective of the of the work that's going on right now. Uh, and I think um, you're going to be the voice of this uh, subject for many years going forward. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you for, for, sharing, for sharing your your, your knowledge. And I know that the audience would appreciate it very, very much. And I hope we could sit down and talk about it uh, one more time and go into all the other details that we didn't get a chance to do so today. Right. Well, well likewise um, to the two of you, I mean, your focus on the science and there's a lot of noise in, in the, the wellness and lifestyle medicine space, but staying focused on on the data and presenting it in a clear way is a huge service. And so I thank you both for for what you do and for having me with you today. Oh, it's, it's our great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.